Hello and welcome to the Data Talks podcast by AIM. My name is Chris and today we have Matt Smith with us. Matt is an interesting guy with many talents. Uh, we touched on quite a few topics today in the podcast, uh, from service management to consciousness. So, hope you enjoy. We're, uh, we're back here. What are we talking about today, man? Self-service, service management, automation, and all the amazing time cost savings that doing it right can bring to an organization. So you've been working on, on this uh, within your own projects and things. Yeah. What are the things that you've learned and what are the things that, that, that kind of were while you were doing that? So How what I've learned, I think, is that, yeah, organizations... They do a lot of firefighting when it comes to service management. So what we're, what we're talking about here is large service teams supporting thousands of users. And what they're doing is they get loads and loads of tickets in all the time. So people calling up, people emailing in, people using you know self-service portals in IT service management systems to say, I've got a problem, something's broken, or can I have something new, please? And they, they get hundreds of thousands, millions of, of tickets a year. And, and what I've learned is the solution to that usually is just to hire more staff to mm. sit on first line. The, the focus hasn't really been, how do we reduce the number of tickets that are being raised with us so that we can save money? And instead of, you know, Matt sitting in the first line team for the first three years of his career, maybe he can sit there for one year and then years two and three, he's actually off in app support, maybe doing a bit of development, maybe, maybe doing some more value-adding activities in the organization. Is that a business model thing? Is that, I mean, like, because I imagine if we're talking about, you know, if, if you have an internal department that's dealing with that, then I see what you're saying. If, if your business model is to, you are a service provider, then you're, I imagine you're charging for that. So it's within your interest to, Reduce well, those. I mean, I'm I'm mainly talking about so internal service teams. If you're a fire chief, yeah, right, and you, you keep getting ten fires a day, yeah, and you've only got nine fire engines, yeah, then you'd be like, oh, okay, let's buy another fire engine. But shouldn't you actually be asking yourself, why am I getting ten fires a day? Is there anything I can do so that I only get one or two? Is there is what you're saying that there is there is something that people can be doing? Like if, yeah. and what, what is that then? So. I mean, it's one of the things that, that admittedly has been going on for a while is, is called problem management. So within sort of the IT service management world, you can raise something called a problem. And a problem isn't an incident. People confuse those quite a lot. An incident is, hi, guys, something's broken. Can you fix it for me? A problem investigation is where you've got multiple recurring incidents and you want to get to the the root cause so you can stop them from happening in the future. Um, so let's say, I don't know, every single day you're getting a call, the printer's broken, the printer's broken. Can you fix the printer for me? And so what you're doing is sending somebody out to, to fix that printer every single day for a whole year. Whereas actually, if you were doing some analysis on your tickets and you saw these trends that every single day we're getting a printer issue ticket raised, Instead of just sending somebody out from their from their desk, spending time fixing that every single day, um, if you just bought a new printer that didn't need fixing and it wasn't broken or it was easier to use, 
then that's a that's a pretty good business case. When, when you when you look at the cost, like the the FTE cost, let, let's say you, you've got this one person spending five percent of their time working on printer issues, and um, add that up over a couple of years, you've got easily a business case to buy a new printer. Um, it, it's that type of problem investigation. I mean, that, that's quite a basic one, buying a new printer. You don't always have to buy your way out of the issue. You could perhaps do a development change to a system to make the system easier to use or, or to break less. Or perhaps when it comes to a server, you could provision more RAM or CPU cores to a particular VM or whatever it might be. So problem investigation is, is definitely something that's been going on for a while. When, when I implement IT service management systems within organizations, they tend to do incident management well. They tend to do service request management pretty well. Same when, same when it comes to change requests, they're, they're pretty good at that. But usually when you say, uh, what's your problem management process? They normally look at you sort of with blank expressions, sort of like, eh, we don't really do that. We, you know, once in a while, the incident manager might, might raise a problem record, but that's it. It's a really good point. I mean, I'm thinking back to my jobs and things. Times in which I think a lot of people get frustrated in work is essentially comes to, down to that, is that there is a problem and then you you see and watch other people essentially not dealing with the problem in the correct manner. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time I think that it's the wrong people get signed to the problem management, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's the wrong person trying to deal with the problem. Um, and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's because those who are up the ladder far enough to be decision makers who can fix the problem are also too far away from the problem to understand it. Yeah, and I'm taking, I mean, I'm I'm trying to take, I've got specific examples in my head. I'm trying to kind of reduce this down to actually what is the commonality here in in these different things. So how do you, that's a really good point. How do you then, how can you fix that without being too specific into one thing like at the printer? How do you take that and, and, and create a solution to fix that problem? Well, you would normally have to have a dedicated problem manager because I think if, if you if you try and get the, the help desk manager to do it, they're so used to just restoring service, sort of the firefighting that I'm talking about, that they don't always have the time to step back, look at the wider picture and come up with a, a broader solution to, to fix the root cause. So there's certainly like a software element. I, you need to have an IT service management system that allows you to do reporting on trends um, and you need to have somebody that is dedicated to trying to uh, find problems, carry out problem investigations, and then be able to report on the progress that they're doing. So if you then see ticket numbers are falling and recurring incidents are falling or priority one incidents, major incidents are falling in number, then you know you're probably doing problem management right. Can you automate that though? Can you, take, can you automate no. that whole process? Well, no, not really. It's, it has to be it, done. It takes a person. I mean, yeah, you probably could have an AI that kind of you know, analyzes ticket trends and, and comes up with with possible problem investigations. But in order to like solve the root cause of it, it's normally then, like, let's say when it comes to the printer, I very much doubt you could design an AI that would, I mean, maybe you could. But. Maybe OCR, but are there OCR in there? Keep recognizing printer in, in something? Well, even OCR you, you would just be you need OCR because no, just, it's, it's it's ticket details. But no, there, there, so that you can you can have an AI that finds ticket trends. But how do you then get the AI to then procure the new printer? Or <laughs> okay, to yeah. I mean, yeah. and uh, you know, you, you could get it to provision new CPU cores to a particular process. 
Or, you know, you, you could even have an AI that sort of fixes the code that's the problem. But I don't think we're there yet with, with AI models to, to have that, the intelligence that you need to make those decisions. Because it could just be you weigh up the costs of, let's say a printer in this industry is a million pounds. It's probably not worth replacing it. It's, it's probably cheaper then to get this person to go there every single day and press a button to fix it. You know, an AI isn't necessarily going to be able to do that sort of business case justification thing. But what about highlighting? So, I mean, you know, when AI starts going into the realms of decision making, yeah. you know, what, what happens to us? But it, what about uh, in this, um, just the recognition of problems? So AI involved in recognizing that, because maybe maybe an organization is so large or a problem is, is so niche or specific that you don't have someone who's actually recognizing, because the printer is a very obvious one, right? It's, it's the final step of a process. Yeah. You're trying to print out a document, the printer is the problem. But let's say you have a really long chain of, a, a process that has a long chain of things, and that there is a, there's a, a pattern of, of a problem somewhere in the chain, but something that is, is not something that people would be very um, aware of necessarily. Mm -hmm. Can you, is there, is there a way to, to uh, automate that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen it done in reporting, so looking at, at keywords and also understanding like the ontology of words. So printer is linked to ink and it's linked to paper. So right. when you've got these words that exist together in multiple tickets, because if you're just comparing ticket A to ticket B, ticket A is about a printer issue and ticket B is about an ink issue, then if you've got quite a basic AI, it might not make that connection that they're linked. Um, but that's where sort of understanding the ontology of words in your AI model would, would come in to be able to properly compare those two things together. Because a human could look at it and go like, yeah, ticket A is to do with printer, ticket B is to do with ink. Yeah, I kind of get it that those things could, could be linked. Um, so yeah, you need an AI model that does understand the relationship of words in order to, to actively do it. So that's like the, the problem management side of things. And certainly, People have been doing it for a while, but not necessarily very well because, you know, they tend not to have a dedicated problem manager. But that's still got a place nowadays. That still needs to happen. But but in my my point of view, that the best way of reducing ticket numbers, if that's what an organization is after, reducing ticket numbers, reducing strain on their first line and second line teams. And therefore, because people have got more time, they can dedicate more time to their customers, make their customers happier. If that's what you're looking for, then you certainly need to look at some form of um, self-help, self-service. So actually users yeah. solving their own issues. So a combination of that, um, but also automation. So whereby you might have somebody manually tapping away on a computer in order to fulfill your request. Uh, automating that process will certainly save time. When I when I when I look back at like you know problems you have in IT and you you do troubleshoot or whatever and mm -hmm. just thinking of Windows whatever you're thinking of yeah. in the past I felt the self self help aspects of solutions and tools and whatever you think of it's not been very good. Yeah. Do you think there's a there's a reluctancy from from a user to actually start interacting with that? Because yes. I, I think there's a real I mean I know myself I am reluctant to do the self help stuff yeah. because I have it ingrained in myself that this is going to be really hard. I'm not going to know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, how do you get past that? And yeah. what, what are the what are the tools and things that you? I mean, I know you've been, you've done some of this yourself. Yeah, 
So the, the main challenge when it comes to um, sort of consuming knowledge articles and, and self-helping and, and self-serving is that generally the thing that's going to give me my, the answer to my question, it's all very fragmented where it exists throughout an organization. So I could have some knowledge articles in SharePoint. I could have some in Confluence. I could have some in my IT service management system, like Remedy Force or ServiceNow or, or whatever it is. So I, as a user, how do I know where to go in order to, to self-serve? I don't. There could be like 5, 10, 15 places that I need to go to. I don't know which place to go to, so I'm probably not going to go to any of the places. I've got a 10% chance of, of searching the correct knowledge base, and I probably won't do it. It's a lot easier to pick up the phone or email the service desk, yeah. and they'll do it for me. So what we're doing is, is bringing, bringing together all of those fragmented areas into a single search bar. So we have a product called DataServe, and it's, it's a, what we call a tool agnostic self-service portal. So what we mean by that is most IT service management systems have got a portal in them. The Remedy 4, ServiceNow, Helix, ITSM, they've all, got, they've all got a portal built into them. But that portal is always tuned to the databases that exist within that system. So if I, if I want to find a knowledge article that exists in ServiceNow, and I go to the ServiceNow portal, and then I'll be able to find it. Um, how do I then um, have some way of searching all, all knowledge sources in one go? And so what we do with DataServe is we integrate with all those different knowledge sources. We, we poll them every minute, every day, every week, however often it is, and bring all of that data into an index database within, within DataServe, and then allow users to have a single search bar. So imagine Google, but it's a single search bar that is tuned to all of the, the knowledge that exists within an organization. So I can start typing in my printer's broken, or whatever it might be. DataServe will automatically find the most relevant knowledge article out of all of those different storage locations, all of those thousands of articles. It'll find me the best one. Now, finding the best one, you're probably thinking, well, how does it know which is the best article that's going to help Matt in, in that context? The, the first thing it does is looks at um, keyword matches. So it uses something called Elasticsearch. And it'll look at what the user has typed into the search bar. And it will scan everything that it's found within its databases. And it will come back with a relevancy match. So if I say the ink in my printer is on fire, <laughs> but there are there are three keywords there. There's ink, yeah. fire, and printer. Um, they will get searched within those documents, and it, it'll be able to understand that um, you know the printer user guide that has got ink, fire, and printer in might be more relevant to me. Um, it also accounts for spelling errors, and it also accounts for the ontology of words. So when Matt searches for printer, DataServe can also throw these ontology words into the mix as well. So it casts a really broad net when it does its search. So if Matt maybe calls his PC a tower mm. instead of a PC, it'll make sure that Matt finds it his knowledge article that's due with his PC, even though he says tower and those knowledge articles don't contain the word tower. So it's like having your own your own personal Google built into yeah. your system. That's it. And, it. and it's got machine learning built in because that's the other element of of what's the best article for Matt or the best resource for Matt. It's not just the one that's got the best keyword match. Mm. It's 
the one that's been most useful to people historically. Yeah. And it's not just across the organization. Um, data sort of splits up the organization into uh, different persona groups. So it could be like the C-suite. Um, they probably like to consume different resources when you compare it to our developers. Developers probably want like a really techy, wordy, detailed document to help solve their issues. The C-suite probably would much rather watch a YouTube video about how to solve issues. Okay, so it'll you, the medium of the help will, will change in terms of what medium you present it. Exactly. Ah. So what DataServe is doing is um, it's analyzing each interaction that a user has with its particular resources. And it, it covers what we call explicit feedback. So, you know, like the thumbs up, thumbs down type thing. Did this yeah. help you? Did this not help you? Well, they used to have on YouTube back in the day. Yeah, I think they've brought it back. Is it back? Yeah, it shows you how many thumbs up and the thumbs down button is there, but it doesn't actually show you how many thumbs downs you get, which is weird. I I know we're going off on a tangent here, yeah. but I think that has an inverse effect because my brain, what my brain does if it sees thumbs up, and then, then it, what I do is I look at the thumbs up, I look at the view counter, and then I go, okay, uh, minus that from the views, and oh, I just my brain. I know it's not true, I, I, but I can't remember. And this is going to happen more and more. Yeah. I'm just going to assume that whatever isn't a thumbs up is a thumbs down. Right. So for me, like, so that's how I do it now. Yeah. I just assume that now I know that you know, having watched YouTube in the past, I know that normally there's, there's a small percentage of people who are actually voting up and down yeah. compared to the views. But I think that's a bit of a backfire. I'm a very visual person. I'm definitely a YouTube person. I yeah. would, I would. And in my past work and stuff, I'd always go straight to you. I go to YouTube before I go to Google. Yeah, hundred percent time. But I know there's other people out there that that pref would prefer a manual, would prefer actually reading through stuff. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah. So it's, it's automatically capturing that feedback. But the, the other thing is, you can't just rely on thumbs up, thumbs down because people might not care. They'd be like, "Well, I don't want to take one click and half a second of my time to provide feedback. I just can't bother." Yeah. So we also capture implicit user behavior feedback. So we're analyzing the actual interaction that the person has with that resource, and we're able to then feed that into the same machine learning model to work out how useful it was to them. So would that be time spent looking, are you capturing time spent looking at things or? Yeah, and it actually depends on the resource itself. So if we provide, because not all self-help is around consuming a knowledge article, and I'll come on to the other bits a little bit later, perhaps if we talk about automation. But you could provide somebody with a form to fill out, or you could provide them with a, a virtual agent conversation right, in, in order to fulfill their request. Um, or you could provide them with a link to an external website, um, yeah, or a video, or, or a knowledge article. Or perhaps you've got a, a priority one notification that you sent around the whole organization, and you, you want to provide them with that notification because it tells them that this system is down. So you don't need to let us know about it. We're already working on the issue. So there's all these different types of resources. And, and we've got this machine learning model that um, in the case of a knowledge article, and this is completely configurable by the, the user, is um, what percentage of the average reading time has that user had it open for and, and how much have they scrolled through it? Now, you can't take that as, as gospel because it could well be that you, you've opened up a, a resource and actually, your answer is on the first line. So you close it immediately. What if they, they open it up, they go to make some coffee? 
Well, exactly. And, yeah. you know, you, you can't always mitigate against these things. You, you have to do your best shot. And, and that's why the explicit feedback always, like, overrides any implicit feedback that we have, if that makes sense. Right. So but there's thumbs up, thumbs down. It's going to... That will override whatever the implicit engine has got. But um, the the implicit feedback is, is, is then always tempered, as it were, by, like, a neutral explicit response. Mm. So although, like, you know, the implicit feedback might be... Uh, very bad because you've opened and closed it straight away. If you've given it a thumbs up, it's a thumbs up. Right. So, so we, we do have all these these different things. So you can specify like how how what percentage of the video has been watched, what what percentage of that article has been looked at. But if you provide a link, have they then clicked on that link to go to that website? If you provided a form or a virtual agent conversation, did they go through and actually submit that form or have that conversation? Um, so we do have all of these really great mechanisms working out how useful something is that's beyond your traditional sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, or like a survey. And then that's that's fed back into that machine learning model. And you're actually, you're actually given a percentage. So when I search for my printer's broken, um, DataServe will give me the top three results across all resource collections, and it will have a percentage suitability next to each one of them. But it also has its its virtual agent called Amy built into it. So I can have a conversation with Amy um, about my particular issue. Amy will suggest resources. I can provide feedback as we go through. Um, but that leads us quite nicely onto the other things. So we've spoken about problem management. We've spoken about sort of self-help and, and sort of resolving things by, by consuming resources. But you've also got the automation side of things, which is huge. I mean, we, we were working with a university and um, this has been going on for a couple of years, but particularly with like the pandemic, people working from home needing to create Microsoft Teams, uh, yeah. as in like the teams that live within yeah. Microsoft Teams, if you know what I mean, in order to sort of manage their work and do research and, and collaborate and all that type of thing. And what they needed to do is that needed to go to a second line analyst to basically approve that that team can be created because they had certain like requirements about the team name and the email address and oh, okay, yeah. who should be in the team and you can't have a duplicate team name and all this stuff and and when you added it up it was a considerable amount of, of this second line person's time you know they, they could be on a wage of you know 45 50,000 pounds a year and they're spending five percent of their time ten percent of the time just creating teams um it's that type of stuff that you can easily automate and so what DataServe has within it as well is, is an automation engine that allows you to uh, build a form um, that you can complete as a user or as a chatbot conversation, actually, because the virtual agent can take you through question by question um, the, the things that you have within your form. And then all you have to do um, is just integrate with whatever systems you need to automate. So in the, in the, in the case of the, the team, creating a team, it's called the Graph API. It's the Microsoft API. And all you have to do is construct a payload of data within DataServe that you then hit a particular endpoint within the Graph API. And, and through a process of creating a group and then converting it to a team, you can automate that process and suddenly you save 10% of that second analyst, second line analyst's time just by automating that one process. And, and we, we, did, we built it and we built the process in DataServe. And, and honestly, and, and this was without actual, this is 
while learning the API at the same time, right? So we, we haven't actually yeah. used this particular endpoint within the API. So if you pull together all of the learning about their requirements, learning about the API, and then actually building the process within DataServe, you're talking about a couple of hours work in order to, to automate that process. And save. And save 10% of the second line analyst's time. And it, it doesn't just mean that they can then spend that time doing value-adding activities mm. elsewhere, but that person's happier because mm. they're not spending 10% of their time just doing stuff that they don't want to do. Yeah. I find that as well in, in the jobs I've worked with. There's always... Um, there always happens. There's always one aspect of of your job that is kind of a grindy thing. You think to yourself, "Why am I? Why am I doing this? This yeah. this doesn't make sense." And you end up doing it over and over again until somebody actually comes along and goes, "Okay, women, there's a way we can solve this." I've got to ask you about Amy because um, yeah. I used it, yeah. and I was really surprised that you guys were able to build something like that. I, I assumed that that when I first used it, you were, I don't know, you were using something else, you were importing it something else, some other sort of like. Pre like a package. Yeah, 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 that'd be built. What was it like creating that? Like, what, how do you, I wouldn't know where to start in that process of creating, you know, a virtual assistant. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was fun. <laughs> you know, you learn about a lot about neural networks and about AI and Elasticsearch and all this stuff while doing it. But what I have to say, the main thing that surprised me is that we actually, because we did build it from the ground up, you'd think it could take years. We had a working prototype up in about a couple of days. Really? Yeah. And more, to, to what extent could it answer questions? Um, yeah, in, in that you could you could type something in and it would scan the neural network for any matching what we call intents. So like if I type in like, um, I don't know, I, I want to talk to you about my printer issue or I want to speak to an agent, for example, that, that's an intent. So it scans the neural network looking for intent matches, then it will know what the next step is. The next step is either transfer to an agent or display this knowledge article or whatever. So, so explain intent, man. What, what, what do you mean by that? And, and how is that yeah. being done? I mean, I, I think I understand it, but how is that actually, what's the nuts and bolts of that? How is that yeah. done? So we, we have this, this neural network and you can actually visualize it within data search. So you can see in effect what Amy's brain looks like. But... An intent is basically a, a collection of, of keywords, and it's multilingual as well. So it's, it's not just English. You can actually have up to 35 languages supported within, within DataServe. And we have a what's called a confidence rating. So if we have an intent that contains the words, um, I'm just thinking of a good example. Let's say I want to onboard a new employee. So I need to, I need to tell Amy about the, the new employee's name and when they're starting and the laptops that they need and all that stuff. You create an intent and you put in keywords like employee, new, onboarding, new hire, etc. So when I type stuff in, or if I actually talk to Amy, because I don't have to type, I can just use my own voice. Um, Amy will, will have a look at the words that the user has, has entered in, in, into the chat, and it will compare it against those intents uh, within the, the neural network. And those intents are then linked to specific actions. So we have a setting that says, what's the minimum confidence rating that Amy needs to have against a specific intent in order to launch that intent? So if we've got this intent, which is, I want to onboard a new employee, and we've got a load of keywords in there, and Matt just says, uh, new, new person, let's say, that might not meet the threshold for launching that specific intent. 
And so it's all about sort of tuning the neural network to make sure that you've got the correct keywords against your intents. You've tuned what that sort of confidence level needs to be. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's what an intent is. It's it's understanding the intent of the user. Would the, the order would the order of the words come into play at all? Or is it, really. is it is it just you're you're taking these keywords and you're working out? Yeah, it's just comma separated keywords basically. Right. Then sort of published within the neural network and then sort of learned by any. And it'll just when you break it down, the sort of the mysticism of AI really disappears because yeah. literally all you're doing is a keyword match against some other keywords. And if you've got a, a particular sort of match score, which you know, as I said, is called a confidence rating, then do this next action. A lot of the time, I think when people, when you're saying AI, everybody gets that confused with general AI, yeah. thinking that you know, and it's I guess it's to do with what's exciting. It's more exciting to think of things. Oh, it's just, this is a person thinking. Mm. Um, and I often think when people when people are talking about it, you know, it's, I'm not a expert at it, but I feel like we are so far away from understanding consciousness to then apply that into some sort of AI. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Ever see that as a, um, you know, as a as a thing? I've, I've, got, I've gone off traffic tracking. Well, we, we can definitely talk about that <laughs> on another, another podcast. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that. A master's degree from the University Indeed. of Birmingham. Ah. Um, the the title of that master's degree is the philosophy of mind and cognitive science. So my and I've I've written a book actually. So have I've, you? I've written a book which is on it's two essays about consciousness and. So the first question is, um, does one require language in order to have thought? Oh, then, there's so much I want to talk to you about this. The, the second paper is about uh, Mysterianism, which is a doctrine from a chap called Colin McGinn. And uh, and I go through and I sort of reformulate it a little bit. So I've got a book. Let's have a podcast <laughs> on the philosophy of the mind and yeah. consciousness. Oh, I want to do that. definitely talk about that. I have one. a lot of theories about that. Yeah, All right. but no, you're quite right. But, but I'm, I'm a physicalist when it comes down to the philosophy of the mind. So I don't think there's anything sort of you know, particularly mystical about the mind and consciousness. I think it's all handled by physical processes. It's all material. Everything's yeah. real. I guess materialist. Is that a good way of? Yeah. So 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 my 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 sort of view on this is if you could literally copy my brain, the sort of atom for atom, neuron for neuron you would have a literal copy of me that has the same thoughts. Uh, I mean, the, the slight difference, of course, is that brain exists within a slight different location in the world. So the inputs are going to be slightly different. So they will go off on different tangents and they'll live different lives. But at the time of it being copied and pasted, the thoughts are one-to-one. -one. Here's my thing, right? Mm. And, and we are going into it, and I, I will stop after this one point. Uh, and it's just, an, it's just a total idea. Yeah. I think... And this is there's probably people out there groaning because they 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 know about this and I'm I'm saying something very obvious, but as humans we quantify everything into units so that we can understand it and all our maths and everything all our thoughts and the way in which we look in the world I think a lot of a lot of what is missed is, um, you know the space in between if that makes sense and I and I mean that within maths as well that we have quantified everything in order to understand it and and when you say if you could take this copy of your brain. I don't think as, you know, within physics, we don't fundamentally understand the universe at a real fundamental level. Each time we go down a layer, we realize there's a layer beneath that. Mm. Um, and it's almost like kind of that fractal thing, you know, you yeah, keep going down. Yeah. yeah, the layers are endless. So, where, you know, saying things like, you know, you know like you were saying, like, you know, if we could copy my brain, but, you know, 
I don't, I don't know that 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 we are even think we're not we may not even be thinking in the right kind of way. The idea that you could take a neuron and it's this individual thing. Mm. Well, actually, can you can is it is that even possible? Is it the is there is a no. unit? Sorry, the answer is no. I don't think it is possible. But I think my argument is, if it was possible, then then it would have the same thoughts because they are they're identical physically. It's it's removing the the mind as this non-physical entity, you see. Mm. But no, I agree. I, I think you, you can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, and we, we will find more and more fundamental particles, and they consist of even more fundamental particles, and so on forever. I mean, I guess my point is that it's, from what I can tell, it doesn't, it, it, it isn't possible. It, it will never be possible to, to copy it, to copy, even with, with all the know, power in the universe, is that by, by, I don't, I don't mean design in terms of like intelligent design, mm-hmm. but by design, it wouldn't ever be possible for you to copy something at all because of the nature of the universe well, and how things work. Randomness as well for the location of things. So, well, we perceive it as randomness, but is it randomness? Is it, is it just that that yeah. the way we've quantified everything that that we in order for us to understand anything, you have to quantify into a unit, right? Mm-hmm. And that when you look at that unit, then it starts to you, you do experiments within physics and stuff. Is that okay? This thing, this appears to be random. And and it's kind of where quantum physics starts coming come to play and stuff. But um, is it? And I'm very much a lay person, so this I could be talking absolute rubbish here, not knowing. But is that is the fact that we've started off by quantifying everything within maths to understand it actually like a fundamental flaw in the way our thinking works? Yeah. That's my. But we'll do this another time. Maybe we'll, that's when we'll bring Graham in. So Graham, for our listeners, is our oh, sales director, yeah. and he has a, a degree. I don't know if it's a master's degree to do with quantum mechanics. So I think. I've had you, my philosophy, <laughs> Graham's quantum mechanics. We can definitely get to the bottom of my stupidity. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have some people who actually know something and have me. What if maths isn't real? Did you think about that? But but to answer your question, yeah, like what was it like? Um, it was it was eye opening in that you could get something working very quickly that actually was very accurate and very helpful. Um, and yeah, it it really demystifies AI because at the end of the day, it's. You know, a neural network is just a way of saying, if this happens, then do this. Like computers have been doing that forever. Yeah, that's the whole point of a computer. If, if this, then this. It's just that you've got so much of it in such a tight sort of space, and they're all sort of interlinked and everything, that it then has this sort of perception of intelligence and, and consciousness, without, of course, not being sentient at all. It is surprising because when I was using it, I was surprised at how, you know. Um, how accurate it was. What's what's the famous test for consciousness called again? It's Turing test. Turing test, yeah. I, I've, I always thought with the Turing test that I'm not, here again, I'm going to like be really arrogant. Like, I don't I don't know that that's a great test for consciousness because that essentially says that if you can't tell the difference, flawed as you are, then that thing is that by, you know, by definition is now self-aware. I don't, no, I don't, I don't think it's a test for self-awareness. I, I, I need to check. I did it like first year. But it, it's it's almost like if you can beat it, then you've developed something that's really intelligent. I don't think it therefore right. leads on to it's then sentient. Oh, okay. Because it's not true that it is, you know. Like, no. Yeah. Um, it's all about if if you can pass the Turing test, then you've managed to create an AI that's indistinguishable from a human, which is a, like a great thing. Mm. But yeah, it, it does not necessarily then lead to it being conscious. Do you think that so? You where you've been working on Amy. Um, does that help with um, people's 
ability to jump on with the self-help. You know, we were saying mm-hmm. in the beginning how yeah. there's a resistance to actually engage with that. So does having Amy help with the engagement of, of the tool mm. and that self-help? Yeah, and then, it does. But because Amy is proactive. So when a user is searching for something, what, what Amy is doing is working out, using that implicit feedback engine that we mentioned earlier, is working out, has that user had a positive interaction as a result of these search results that we've given them within a certain time period? So let's say we set that to 10 seconds. At 10 seconds in, if Matt hasn't found the answer to his problem, Amy will pop up and say, hi, can, can I help? Mm. And you can then go through the sort of the virtual agent route. And what's really nice about it is that you can build forms for people to fill in. People are a bit bored about filling forms in now because we do it a lot all the time for yeah. the service requests that we raise. But Amy will take you through step-by-step step through those forms. And if you've got a multi-select pick list, so you're your new joiner, there's a field that says what department is he or she going to be in, you know, HR, sales, etc. Amy lists them out as actual buttons within the chat. So you can just like click on the button instead of having a pick list, which again, I think people are quite bored of. Or I can just say the words. I can say HR. Amy will select HR for me. Um, and then once we're done, Amy will go, right, here's everything I captured. Shall I submit this for you? You can say yes or no, and then you can go from there. So it really drives up engagement. Um, the cool thing about it as well is it has something called entity detection. So when Amy says, when is your new joiner starting? I can say next Tuesday at noon. And it will convert, because in effect, that field is a daytime field that it's expecting. Yeah. So, you know, day, day, slash, month, month, slash, year, year, with, with time at the end. Um, because of entity detection, it will look at that sentence that I've said, and Amy will automatically convert that into the data that the database is looking for. So instead of going, I'm sorry, I was expecting a daytime and you've given me a sentence. Yeah. Uses entity detection to, to translate. So that already helps drive up adoption. How accurate is that? Is that very accurate? It's, yeah, very accurate. Oh. And, and, it, and it, it feels more conversational. As we yeah. Say. Yeah. I mean, that's been, the, that's been kind of the promise for, and I, and I think it's starting to, starting to actually deliver that you will have this AI functionality that you could just conversationally speak to. And in that conversation, it will it will intelligently understand what you're saying. And I think yeah. for years, that's been, I mean, it's been around for a long time. And for years, I don't know if it was, a, if, I mean, maybe you can tell me if it was a, a limitation in technology or a limitation in our thinking about how to apply AI that kind of would have, would result in situations like that. Like, sorry, I don't understand what you said. Mm. Please, can you try again? And now, but now it does feel a lot more conversational. Yeah, it was a very iterative process, I think, in order to get to that. Because you need a lot of data in order to be able to translate that stuff. Yeah. And I know another example is um, sentiment detection. So when Amy says, did that help you? No! Or do you, do you want to submit this for me? <laughs> I can say, that's crap. Yeah, right, and, really? And it will understand. Again, angry. there's a confidence rating there. And it will say, like, is this a negative, a neutral, or a positive thing that Matt's saying? Right. And, you know, there's that sort of neutral middle ground where it kind of won't necessarily know. Like, if it says, was that helpful? And I say potato, right. it's probably, it's probably so I'm not sorry, I'm not, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure what you mean by that. Yeah. But if I say, oh, that was that was really crap. Oh, it's just more of a scale than just a binary yeah, thing. Exactly. Right, okay. Right, well, thank you very much. And uh, much, uh, Matt, uh, I need you to go. Um, but yeah, that was good. We'll, we'll definitely go back and uh, have that have that level about consciousness. Um, and yeah, I will wrap it on about my crazy theories to you for an hour or so. Thanks very much, man. Thanks a lot. See you later. Cheers. Bye.
And that's the end of the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Data Talks by AIM to have access to the latest episodes. And if you'd like to offer some feedback or suggestions on new topics for future episodes, please let us know at marketing at AIMLTD.UK. Information about our services and products can be found on our website, and that's www.aimltd.uk. Thanks for listening and have a great day.